All right. Welcome to the first lesson of a new series called God's Providential Preservation of the Scriptures. I'd like to start off this morning by reading a, a section in the Bible, Second uh, Kings chapter 22. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 22. I'll be reading out of a Bible that was read in the town of Etchelhampton, England, back in 1867, when it was presented to my great-grandpa John Stevens, and made it across the ocean, (laughs) and is with us this morning. Um, Chapter 22, verse 1. And I'll explain why I'm reading out of this Bible particularly, because it's a metaphor um, for this class. Um, But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Joshua was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 30 and one years in Jerusalem. This is just verse 1 of chapter 22 of 2 Kings. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Saphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house. Okay, so let me just kind of talk a little bit about this passage here. He started his reign eight years, and this is his 18th year, so what would that be? 26-year-old man, young man, and he notices as he's going through his city that the temple has breaches in it, um, or holes, or disrepair. It's somehow falling into disrepair, and he's like, come on, there's got to be some money devoted to this. Give it to the people so they can keep this place up. And we're going to skip down a little bit further um, uh, to verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Saphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again, and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of them which that do the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. Let's go ahead and start off with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this revival that broke out um, in the book of Kings and how you stirred not only 
um, Hilkiah the high priest and Shaphan who had read the book, but you stirred this young man's heart, Josiah. In the same way, Lord, we pray that you would you would stir our hearts. That you would bring revival to your, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I get excited when I, when I read passages like that. It's, it's uh, meaningful to me. Um, uh, you think out of uh, one of the themes of the Reformation was post-Tenebrous Lux. Out of darkness, light, you know, and uh, it 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 speaks to the love of God for His people when He re- He comes down and He revives us. He re- He revives our church, uh, His people. Um, so I, I divided today's lesson, which is like an introduction into this doctrine of the preservation of Scripture, into three main sections. There is what is the class. What, what are we going to be covering in this class? Uh, why I chose this topic and the importance of this doctrine. <clears throat> if you think about the categories of the Bible, uh, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith has the very first section is about the Bible and it has various topics that it talks about. Uh, we could talk about... Um, you know, and a lot of systematic theologies have this as well. They have they start out with the Bible, or they might start out, start out with theology proper, uh, uh, and then lead into the doctrine of the of the scriptures. Um, but um, we could talk about the necessity of of the Bible for salvation. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter One, Section One, is about the necessity of the scriptures for us to be saved. We could talk about the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, how there is no higher authority to attest to Scripture other than Scripture itself, um, uh, because it is the Word of God. We could talk to talk about the infallibility of Scripture against liberals who would deny miracles. We could talk about the sufficiency of Scripture against charismatics that think that we need um, a direct revelation from the Holy Spirit, or against pragmatists who think we need modern psychology, or against Roman Catholics who think we need tradition. Uh, We could talk about the sufficiency of Scripture to sanctify us, to equip us for every good work. Or we could talk about the perspective uh, perspicuity is that perspicuity <laughs> that word <laughs> um, per- perspicuity of scripture there I think I got it no, almost almost um, the clarity in which it is clear uh, to all, all of us uh, that it is not uh, obscure or um, uh, hidden to us the, or we could talk about the finality of scripture how the canon has been closed all of those are good topics, but I'm going to narrow my, my topic down to the preservation of Scripture. And it's, it is an important doctrine. Um, what is the preservation of this neglected, I would call it a neglected doctrine? Um, what is this doctrine? What is this about? Well, let's, let's look at Westminster Confession of Faith, 
well, before I say that, I, I do think it is a neglected doctrine. Let me quote to you a quote by Daniel Wallace and in his Perspectives on the Ending of Mark, page 118. He says this, I don't hold to the doctrine of preservation. The doctrine first formulated in the Westminster Confession of, of Faith was a poor, has a poor biblical base. I do not think that the doctrine is defensible, either exegetically or empirically. As Bruce Metzger was fond of saying, it's neither wise nor safe to hold to doctrines that are not taught in Scripture. Is this a doctrine taught in Scripture? Obviously, Bruce Metzger, who is a foremost Greek scholar in our day. I have his book on Greek grammar. It's fantastic. Um, He is a very knowledgeable man. But he thinks there's no biblical basis for this doctrine. Um, he's a, a professor of New, New Testament Studies of Dallas Theological Seminary, founder and director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. So what are we talking about? Let's, uh, let's read Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 1, on the Holy Scripture, Section 8. This is Section 8. And this is, this is my definition of the preservation of Scripture, really. The Old Testament in Hebrew which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal Onto them. Okay, so what is the subject of that sentence? What is the subject, the main subject? I'm, I'm taking you back to your eighth grade grammar. Uh, my eighth grade grammar, I don't know. You got a subject of sentence, you got a verb, you have a direct object, you have the indirect object. What's the, the original The original manuscripts, right. It says the Old Testament in Hebrew, original manuscripts, and the New Testament in Greek. That's the subject of the sentence. I I would challenge that. It's not the original manuscripts. It's the existing copies that they're referring to. Nobody does. So actually, they're not saying the autographs there. They're saying it's the Greek and the Hebrew as we possess them. Today. That's what they're saying. Yeah. That's good. That's yeah. true. What's what's paid? We're not preserved. We don't know if they're the, we know they're not we're, the exact copies. We're getting we're getting into our next next week's lesson here. <laughs> so let, let's talk about this. The argument. <laughs> we're skipping the ahead. What the confession is referring to is not the autographs. It's the Greek and Hebrew as we possess them. We're, is that your understanding, Dave? Yes. We're going to be talking about. Autographs and apographs, and we're going to be talking about whether that these promises um, that they're talking about. And keep in mind, well, we'll talk about that more. We'll we'll get into that whole issue of whether it, it's limited, and there's a whole history behind that that controversy, and it's brought about by B.B. Warfield. But we'll be talking about that. So. 
so the topic is the Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. We'll be referring to whether that's autographs or apographs or both. Um, is uh, what is it saying about translations? Not anything, really. It's not talking about translations. So this study is not really going to be about the preservation of translations. Some people may be looking at me and, and they're seeing books like the King James Version Defended. I'm not going to be defending the King James Version. Okay, and This is not a study about translations. Okay, It's really a study about God's preservation of the original languages. Does that make sense? What does this statement say about the Hebrew and Greek of the Bible? Well, it first says it's inspired. And when? When does it say it was inspired? Immediately. Immediately. Not when we read it. <laughs> okay, we're not neo-Orthodox and believe in the inspiration as we're reading it or something like that. When it, it, it was immediately inspired. Um, yeah, John, Ruba. Yeah, just a Yeah, that's a good question. I'm uh, because it can be referring to um, direct, you know, like not through a, a mediator, but immediately. Is that what you're saying? Um, that, that could be. I, I I haven't studied that, so that could be the meaning of what why they chose that word, not in reference to time, but in re- reference to their God's relationship to His vessel. You know, He gave that to them immediately. That's a good. That's a good point. Um, <clears throat> it also is saying this about the Hebrew and Greek that it was kept pure. When was it kept pure? What does it say here? <clears throat> it says in the New Testament in Greek, being immediately inspired of God by God and by His singular care and kept pure in all ages. So. So somewhere we have the word of God kept pure. Okay. <clears throat> How? By God's singular care and providence. Why singular? See, all of these words were carefully picked by the reformers to carry it various meanings. Well, only he is able to keep them pure. Only he is able to keep them pure. He is the keeper. <laughs> God's master keeper of his word. Um, through all ages, are authentical. What does what does that mean? All the authentical that the Old Testament and Hebrew and Greek are authentical. Speaks to their truth and accuracy. Yes, they really uh, really is what it claims to be. The Word of God. It's true. Uh, it's veracity. Um, not the word of man, but the word of God. So they're authentic words of God. And lastly, they are to be used to resolve all controversies of religion. What does this mean? It is the word of God is our ultimate what? Judge, authority. Authority. So what we are to appeal to are these original languages. The word of God in the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. What is the scope of God's preservation of the original languages, which we've already talked about? 
Next week, we will look at the scriptural basis for this. Um, The preservation of scripture is the doctrine that God, in his special providence, has preserved his word from destruction and corruption in the original languages for the purpose of calling, sanctifying, and strengthening his elect. That is my my short, shorter definition of the preservation of Scripture. So why did I choose this topic? I, as you know me, I would rather be t- teaching a lesson on justification by faith alone, which I already did. <laughs> um, or maybe this, I'd rather have a, a, a Bible study on the five solas of the Reformation or the five points of Calvinism or even the attributes of God. Those are more exciting to me than the preservation of Scripture. However, I have recognized that I am, uh, I, I wasn't really ex- coming to Calvary with this in mind um, from Des Moines. Uh, well, the reason why I even got introduced to this topic was because my minister in Des Moines was in a Bible study with this man who wrote this book, the King James Version Defended, Edward F. Hills. Um, Edward F. Hills was a, a scholar, and he lived in Des Moines, um, by, <laughs> which, is, um, which was just a, a God's providence that I happened to live in the same town. And I, what, I came across people who went to his Bible study. He... He was a, um, married and had kids, and he um, was serious about the Reformed faith, and he taught uh, Bible studies out of his home. Um, he was part of a small uh, Reformed uh, congregation in Des Moines. And my pastor ended up going to his, his uh, Bible study and picked up some of the things that he taught about the preservation of Scripture and passed that on to me, and I kind of... Shelf, put that on my shelf as a nice thing to, to know. And then I came here to Calvary and um, Orthodox Presbyterian. And the, either the first time I, when I, you all elected me to, set, to be an elder and, uh, and uh, ordained me as an elder, and like the first session meeting or the second session meeting that, um, that we had, what came before the session was let's replace the Bibles with the ESV. Uh, the, these old um, these old Bibles that are in our pews are um, getting old, and let's update them. And I said, um, everybody, we were in on the table, and everybody said, yeah, let's do it. And yeah, yes, I do. And I said, I can't bring my conscience to to say yes, I want to do this. <laughs> Let me get back to you on this. And I went back to my books, and, and I started to study. And it, it was, so I was, it was thrust upon me, you could say. And as I began to study it, I began to have more of a burden for this topic of the preservation of Scripture. Can I add something? Um, yeah, go ahead, John. It's my opinion that the Lord is doing work in the OPC here. There, there are... Uh, it's like the dominoes are falling. More and more men are going back to the to this very topic. Uh, so they're rejecting the ESV in favor of the New King James, and that's that's actually sweeping across the OPC right now. It's, again, it's my opinion the Lord is doing that. Men are coming to this opinion independently. It's not like we're conferencing together and convincing one another. But the same sort of study is going on in many studies by pastors at the moment. 
Yes, and um, so I'm, that's the why of why we're choosing to, to, ta- to bring this topic to bear. Um, I, I've come to have a burden on my heart about it, and um, I will tell you why I think this is important, which is number three here. <clears throat> the importance of the preservation of the scriptures. Why is this important? Well, I'm starting to... I'm starting to recognize a pattern as I go through church history, not only church history in after the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament. In this pattern, what happens, like Josiah in the first Kings, is that you have these periodic revivals. And why do these periodical periodic revivals happen? A lot of times they happen because God's word is rediscovered for the first time. We see this during the Reformation, don't we? We see the Reformation breaking out. Why? Because the Reformers began to read the, um, the Bible and, and teach the scriptures from the original languages. And we have a rediscovery of, in the Western Church, something that always existed in the Eastern Church, is a knowledge of the Greek language. Uh, we have this in the time of Ezra, um, when the, the return of the exiles back to Ezra, in fact, we're going to be talking about this in the, in the history of the preservation of the scriptures. Um, during the time of Ezra, when he restored the Bible, he started an entire school of scholars, and he changed the Bible. Did you know that? Ezra changed the writing of the Old Testament from Old Testament Hebrew and Old Testament letters that were largely based on Egyptian hieroglyphics. And he changed them to the Aramaic letters. So when you pick up a Hebrew Bible, the words that you're reading are, are written, are, have been changed by Ezra. And he wrote part of the Bible. And he, re, and he revised the Bible. And he, and, he, and he started a whole school of the mat that eventually turned into the... Um, uh, the, the scribes, and we'll get into that. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself into the, the third lesson, which is the Old Testament. Um, but anyways, <clears throat> so there was a revival of not only spiritual revival with the, um, with the people coming um, back from the exile, and you can see that they were purifying themselves and they were, they were humbling themselves and they were broken in heart because they had married foreign wives and during that time, there was great spiritual revival. At the same, t- same time, there was great uh, revival of the text and a reverence, a great reverence for the text. We see this happening in the time of the Maccabeans. And Calvin uh, remarks this in, the, in his uh, Calvin's Institutes about how God miraculously preserved um, when the temple was destroyed um, by, um, I, I forget the, the emperor that destroyed during the Maccabeans um, uh, the destruction of the, of the temple. How the, he, Calvin mar- remarks about how the miracle of God's preservation of the Old Testament during that time. Um, we see this during the Reformation. Um, even earlier in the early church period, you have Arianism creeping in. And we see the distortion of the text by the enemy, and then a, rest, a restoration and a revival of Trinitarianism 
and a restoration of the text at that time uh, as well. And so we'll be getting into that. Um, And then, of course, the Reformation. Um, The myth um, today is that we now have computers. We now have, we've gone beyond printing presses. uh, And this has all been settled. You know, this whole issue of the text, the Greek and the Hebrew, has been settled. And this is why we, uh, but this is not true. Um, We now are on our 28th edition, and this is in 2012, um, of the Nestle Allen Greek New Testament. So it's always changing on us. Well, why? Um, Let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21, and I'll explain why. I'll go ahead and find it here in my... Family Bible. It's First Corinthians chapter six. It's the very last chapter of First Corinthians, sixteen, verse twenty-one. First Corinthians. Maybe not the last. Yeah, sixteen, verse twenty-one, and. The, the, the salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. Um, we see similar passages in Galatians 6.11, 1 Thessalonians 3.17. Why did Paul write his salutations in his own hand? Well, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, and we'll find out. 2 Thessalonians... Chapter 2, verse 2 says, That ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter, as from who? As from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. So here the Thessalonian church was being troubled by some imposter that was assuming Paul. Okay, And we see Paul... So it, um, my point being in all of this, why am, I, why am I bringing up these passages? The study will seek to demonstrate that we are at war with Satan and the world over the preservation of scriptures. As soon as Paul became well known, there were those who sought to assume his authority as an apostle, even to masquerade as Paul himself. Today, we have similar masquerades. We are at war for the underlying text of Scripture. Not many people in today's churches are aware of this war being waged against God, this church, his church, and his holy word. <clears throat> so what I'm doing is in this passage, or in this, uh, this study, is I'm calling all of us um, to, to arms. Okay. We are at war with Satan. Satan in this world and he wants nothing better than to steal God's word from the church. You see this in any time there is a great persecution of the church, like the Diocletian period or Nero and those kind of things. You see an accompanying destruction of God's word. 
Um, that's what happened when they burned um, during the Maccabeans. They burned the temple. They burned the writings in the library of the Hebrew texts. Um, and you see uh, during the Diocletian period, him, um, the, the uh, Roman officials coming out and not only slaughtering the elders of the churches, but taking the Bibles and, in, and the original writings of Paul Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and Peter, and taking them into a pile and burning them. And Satan wants to burn our Bibles. He wants to destroy the original languages and, and leave the church without any, any kind of vestige of God's word. So we are at a war. Don't think, don't let your guard down thinking, oh, we're in the modern area. Everybody has a copy of the Bible on their shelf. Um, And we do have translations on our shelves, but the original language is continually being revised and changed and modified in our modern age. And we need to uh, fight this battle, basically. Um, his church, uh, the battle lines have been formed mainly upon the New Testament, even though there are also attacks against the Old Testament Hebrew. The main issue is between two New Testament texts. There is the traditional text, which historically is the Bible used by the church of history. Those who prefer the traditional text generally believe in the doctrine of preservation of Scripture. The traditional text is largely based on the Byzantine family of New Testament manuscripts, which largely agree with each other. Then there is the critical text. In 1881, Westcott and Hort printed their New Testament in Greek, largely based on two recent discoveries, text Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. Westcott and Hort's work continues on today in the popular Nestle Allen critical edition of the New Testament, which is currently in its 28th edition. The critical text is confined to a very small family of manuscripts, namely Aleph, which is Sinaiticus, and B, which is Vaticanus. These are considered to be Alexandrian texts as they originated in the area of Alexandria. It is estimated that there are about 6,000 differences between the Alexandrian and the Byzantine uh, families of texts. We, uh, we recite the Lord's Prayer on a weekly basis. But did you know that the end of Matthew 6.13, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, is omitted from the critical text? So, should we be praying this? Should our pastor be preaching this part of the verse? Did you know that the end of Mark, verses 9 through 20, is also missing? Some would argue that these changes are not significant, but this is not so. The Trinitarian Bible Society has a small book called A A Textual Key to the New Testament, a list of omissions and changes, in which they document 650 significant variances from the traditional text. This list is not complete, but is compiled to show the serious nature of these changes. Significant words, phrases, verses, and sections are either omitted, changed, or added. So what good, I ask, what good is it to believe in inerrancy in our Greek New Testament in a 
uh, if our Greek New Testament is a complete mess and constantly changing. You can claim to believe that God, God's inspired the Bible, but the problem becomes, which Bible did he inspire? Can we ever know, as Christians, what God really said? Did Jesus really say, for yours is the kingdom? Can we know the verb tense of a verb? When will the revision stop? We find it oh so important to pay so much to have our pastors trained in the original Hebrew and Greek, but we could care less what Hebrew and Greek they preach from. When we throw out the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture, the answer is, we will never know. But God, thank God, we can know. We must do the work that God has appointed us to do in the church. We must throw out the Marcions in our midst, just like the first century church did, as the church had done throughout history. We will do this because God has destined his word to be kept pure, and he has not left us alone. He will do this, I'm sorry, he has given us his Holy Spirit. Well, how will we know? You probably, uh, I'm not sure, who knows what, who Marcion was? Do you, do you know the word, the, the, the guy? He's the guy in the first century church that, didn't like any miracles. He was in a, in a, in a, one of the first liberals <laughs> and didn't like any references to the Old Testament. So he took out everything in the New He just kept the New Testament and believed only the New Testament was the Word of God, but only the parts and very limited number of texts from the New Testament. Anything that referenced the Old Testament was out to Marcion. And he took out all references to miracles and that kind of thing. Uh, so even um, then, in, Marce- uh, in the very early ages of the, f- of the church, and I'm not even sure if it was first century. It may have, Marcion might have been second or third century. I, uh, don't quote me on exactly when that happened. Um, but my point being is that the same challenges that the first century church had, we have today. And we need to throw out uh, we, uh, the Marcions from our midst. Um, how will we know who is a Marcion and who is a Paul? There, there are guiding principles found in God's words. Stay tuned for more. So um, that is my first introduction. Um, but yeah, John Rubottom, go ahead. If you don't mind me adding what, some of what you're talking about, the importance of the topic brought to my mind. The many exhortations from Paul to hold back from sexual immorality. Take a look at how faith 
Holy Spirit wrought faith plays a role in in determining what is from God's word and what's not. Um, and that's a very good point because there are should, it all boils down to should we treat the Bible like any historical text um, and just use a scientific approach, or is there also um, does faith enter into that? You know, and does that play a role and change how we approach the scriptures? Um, and we'll, we'll talk in more detail. It's very good, um, very good. Uh, we have about five minutes left, um, and I hate to start in at the next on the next lesson, which is uh, the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. But let me go over what we're going to be talking about in future lessons here. Um, just a brief a brief list of some of the other things that we're going to cover. Um, today we talked about the introduction. Uh, le- lesson um, two is the doctrinal basis of the preservation of scriptures. We'll look through the scriptures and what what do, does Jesus and the apostles have to say about this and uh, Old Testament passages as well. Lesson three will be how God preserved the Old Testament. And I'm really excited about that. There's some really interesting things that I've learned recently about about Moses and whether he wrote the uh, the, the Torah or the Pentateuch, um, because there's some debate about whether he was even was writing even around <laughs> uh, in the time of Moses, and so we'll be talking about that. Um, number, number lesson number four will be how God preserved the New Testament, and we're going to be talking a little bit about writing materials. Uh, it will be I think it will be fascinating just to see what how people struggle to preserve the passages uh, to copy. Um, you know, we'll talk about uh, the paper they used. Um, not pa- it's not paper, by the way. It's it's uh, uh, pap- uh, papyrus and um, vellum, uh, which is uh, you know skins, uh, animal skins, and things like that. Primitive writing tools. We'll be talking about that. Um, the uh, so that's the fourth lesson. The fifth lesson will be the history of textual criticism. Um, and we'll get into the Reformation and the 19th century. Um, and then uh, lesson six, methods of textual criticism. We'll talk about that's where we're going to get into, John, the, you know, the whole role of faith in these methods of determining what, what text is, is uh, authentical. Uh, we're we're going to dive into Vaticanus and Sinaiticus just a little bit. I don't want to get this into a very technical. I don't want this to be a technical Sunday school. This is really going to be a very high level. But um, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the history behind those two texts uh, because this is going to be more primarily not a technical verse by verse discussion about arguing from Hebrew and Greek and that kind of stuff. No, we're not going to go there. But we're going to talk more, it's going to be more of a historical survey of how God is in his providence throughout history, keeping his word preserved. Um, And and I think that will be valuable for us. So we're going to talk about the history, not so much the the various passages that vary uh, of Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Uh, We'll cover key variances like Mark, the pericope of adulteria, which is the... um, and the uh, Johannine comma. We'll cover that just a little bit, and then we'll talk about um, 
modern textual criticism, how it entered into the confessional church in America, how did it cross over from Europe into America and enter into Westminster Theological Seminary or or Princeton uh, Seminary through B.B. Warfield's influence. And then we'll talk about modern trends, the ECM text, the CBGM method, and translations a little bit. Just talk about what translations are based on what text. So that's where we're headed. Um, And uh, I'll close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving your word for us. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that gives your church guidance into all these things. We pray, Lord, for your guidance, for your mercy, and that you would revive us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.